My name is Eric Goodell, and I'm one of the deacons here at First City Church, and I serve as the director of liturgy and family worship. So I want you to imagine with me for a moment the following scenario. You are a young child, and you live in a small village in the jungles of Burma. You're just learning the basics of life. Innocence is all that you know, and the future is bright, or at least it seems bright. What you don't realize is that you were born into a world at war. The longest civil war in modern history, to be precise. The Burmese military government has taken it upon themselves to cleanse your country of your ethnic race, the Karen people. And it's only a matter of time before they show up to your village. And so you go to sleep one night and without a care in the world and suddenly you're jolted awake from your sleep and into a war zone. Your parents rush out of the house, which is now on fire. The militants are killing everyone in sight. And if you don't leave now, there's a slim chance of survival. So you and your family, you make your way to a nearby temple for temporary shelter. And then you go on to the hills. And there you stay for several weeks until it's safe to move on. And you move and you continue to go towards the border of Thailand where you're just hoping and praying with everything in you that they'll accept you into the refugee camp. Well, you finally arrive to this mountainside camp and it's cold and the conditions are cramped, but you're safe, you're secure. You've finally found refuge. So maybe this story sounds like it came from a movie, but it actually came from the life of my, my very good friend and former student Mandarin Ba. For decades, the people of her ethnic tribe, they've been hunted down like animals. The villages have been burned, their women have been raped, the children have taken from their parents. Manger, she knows what it means to have real enemies but she also knows that that sublime relief of finding refuge. And so as we turn our attention to the 17th Psalm, we don't know exactly the circumstances they, that, that that Psalm was written from, but many scholars would place it in the time when David was running for his life from Saul, who was a relative by the way, just keep that in mind. He was hunted down and he was chased from place to place. During this time, David, he was maligned, he was accused, he was hated, his enemies were real, and the threat of danger was constant for him. He needed to find a refuge. And yes, while he, he searched for it and found it often in caves, ultimately David found his refuge in his God. And so now maybe you here don't uh, identify with Manger's story or David's story, Maybe you would say, well, they've got real enemies. They've got real problems. That doesn't really apply to me. And in some ways, you're right. Their situations are very unique. And yet each of us here has experienced unjust pain at the hands of another. Each of us has felt at one time or another attacked or belittled or maligned or bullied at some point. And if that's you, then you, just like David, you need a refuge that you can run to. You need a place that's safe for healing and for peace. And the Psalms have been called a literary sanctuary. 
a safe haven, a shelter, a place where God's people can go to meet with him. A sanctuary where you're invited to bring not just one emotion, but to bring all the emotions that you experience in this life to the Lord. From this tender love of God to, to a deep sorrow over sin, whether that's fear or gratitude or joy or desperation, all of these emotions, they're present in the Psalms and they all serve as this mirror to our own souls. And so First City Church, I want to invite you, the Lord wants to invite you this morning into the sanctuary of the 17th Psalm where David finds himself in the situation where the sorrow that he has is not linked to his own sin, but it's linked to the sins of others against him. God invites you this morning to bring your sorrows, to bring, to bring the wounds that you have experienced at the hands of others into this sanctuary and to hear the answer to this question, because I know we all have this question from time to time. Where can I find refuge when I'm surrounded by those who have hurt me? And so in response, we can hear, even from the start, the words of David. Look at verse 7. It says, Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. It's only in the Lord that we'll find a safe haven. So in this psalm, David shows us how to find refuge in God's love, in God's justice, and finally in God's presence. First, in God's love. If you would look with me at verse one, David says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. I will call on you and you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wow, this guy is bold, right? There is just no holding back. Now, how can David come to this almighty God with such confidence that he will actually be heard? You know, I don't know many people who, who will come and, and talk to me like that, but I do know three, and they're all under the age of seven, if you know what I mean. My kids, they come boldly to me. <laughs> they come boldly because they're confident of my love. They're confident of my unconditional acceptance of them, that I won't reject them when they're hurting and when they're needing help. And I think the same is true here of David. This close relationship that David has with God, it's further expressed in verse eight as it continues. It says, he says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. See, both of these phrases, they're terms of affection, of endearment. In the ancient Near East, this phrase, keep me as the apple of your eye, meant to protect and defend me as much as you would your eye, which is the most sensitive, tender, vulnerable parts of the body. And Deuteronomy says that God protected Israel while they were wandering through the, through the wilderness as the apple of his eye. And so God pleads the same as he faces his current pain and danger. And notice what, what, that David doesn't say, make me the apple of your eye, but he says, keep me there, right? He already knows that he's precious in God's sight. And then God's depicted as this, as this nurturing mother bird who protects her young and vulnerable babies from, from outside attacks. 
These images depict God as caring and loving. He's protective and he's safe. And David is sure of God's love and acceptance of him. And that, and that gives him the boldness to bring his cry to him. And so why is God's love and acceptance a refuge for David? Have you thought of that? Just think about your own experience for a minute. We often naturally find this sense of, of self through the affirmation of those around us, don't we? We ask, am I all right? That's this big burning question we're constantly seem to be asking, whether we say it with our words or not. And often we go with the answer that comes from the people around us. If we're liked, if we're approved, if we're affirmed, then hey, we feel pretty good about ourselves. But when someone says something that belittles us, that accuses us, that maybe degrades our character, it hurts really deeply. And it can even make, in, make us question our own value. But when we are assured that we are dearly loved and dearly cherished by the God of the universe, then while the comments still hurt and the betrayals still sting very deeply, we no longer have to be completely devastated by them because our identity no longer depends on any man or any woman's opinion. But the one who knows me, both the good and the bad, he still loves me. And this is a refuge for David and it can be a refuge for you and me when we face opposition. But also notice something that David, he's not, he's not looking to the people who have hurt him to be justified. Rather, he looks to the Lord for the final verdict. In verse two, it's, David says, from your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. This doesn't mean that we're never to blame for our suffering, right? That our own sin doesn't uh, have repercussions in our lives. But David trusts that if he is in the wrong, then the Lord is going to test and convict him of his part. In fact, he says the Lord did. In verse three, it says, you have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. And so the point is that David cried out for God to be the judge of him. And he didn't give the power of final judgment to the ones who were hurting him. He didn't let their verdict define him, but he rather, rather allowed God's verdict, God's judgment to define him. So listen, with every wound that you receive, there comes with it a message. If you hear this morning, if you recognize a part of your story that you were criticized incessantly or you were belittled by someone's words, then maybe the message that, that, that you are a burden or that you're just a problem to be dealt with is the one you've embraced. Or if the wound that you received came through some kind of abuse, then the message that you aren't worth protecting, that you're expendable, that you aren't worth loving, maybe that's the message that's come to you. And after a time, we, we begin to believe that message, the message of those wounds, and they become this primary shaping force in our lives. But what if God's verdict of you is different? What if the wounds that you have received don't have to be the final say on your value? What if God's primary disposition towards you is one of covenant steadfast love 
and acceptance. See, David knew this with confidence. And we can know it all the more because we know the full extent to which God has showed his love to us, even in the way he sacrificed himself on the cross. So only God's verdict has the power to trump and silence all the defining messages that your wounds have given you. Will you find refuge in his voice, in his vindication of you? So next, David finds refuge in God's justice. Look at uh, verse 9 with me as David continues to describe those who are seeking to harm him. The wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me, they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly, they have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He's like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. And then in verse 13, he cries out, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. So I want you to notice what David doesn't say here first. He doesn't say, Help me as I take revenge on my enemies, help me as I take things into my own hands. Rather, he entrusts justice to the Lord. He releases the outcome of the situation into the hands of the right judge. And friends, listen, this is, uh, I don't want to rush past this because this is really, really hard. I will never get up here and tell this group of people standing in front of me that entrusting justice to the Lord is an easy thing or that's mere, a mere matter of willpower, especially because I know so many of your stories. Um, some of you here have been betrayed by those who are closest to you. Some of you have been falsely accused of, of misconduct, and it's cost you significantly in your life. Some of you have been torn down and manipulated by one or both of your parents. Some of you were ridiculed or devalued because of the way you express your emotions, despite it being a core piece of the way that God has wired you. Some of you have been cheated on. You've been lied to. You've even been disowned by your own family. This is by no means theoretical Christian jargon. This is real life where the temptation to make people pay for the ways that they've hurt you is at times so, so enticing. And trusting in God's justice also means trusting in the timing of his perfect justice. T trusting that his timing is perfect. There are some wounds that you carry that may never see their due justice in this lifetime. And that's a really, really hard thing to swallow. But like David, we can trust that in God's justice by releasing the need for personal vengeance. The God who sees every wrong that has been done to you, he's faithful and he will make it right, whether that's in this life or in the next. With that being said, I do need to say this. Does this mean that there aren't harmful situations or relationships that you need to get away from? No, not at all. We see that when, in David's life, 
when he was pursued by Saul or later on when he was pursued by his own son, Absalom, right? He ran far from their attacks. But when he was given the opportunity to make them pay at his own hands, he refused to take vengeance and entrusted justice to the Lord. And so we find refuge in God's love, his justice, and finally we find refuge in his presence. And to specify, we find refuge in God's presence rather than the mere comforts of this life. Look at verse 14 with me. He says, deliver my soul from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They're satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. For David, his satisfaction in in the midst of this relational brokenness, it comes from seeing the face of God. And you may say, well, yeah, sure, that's, that's the obvious answer when you're in trouble, right? But is it really? How often are you tempted to find your portion and your refuge in this life? Notice that everything mentioned in verse 14 about the wicked, it says it's earthbound. Their satisfaction is in their children. Their hope is in their wealth and in their material goods. They look to what they can get in this life because it's all that they can see. They can't see beyond that. But is it just them (laughs) that are prone to do this? Right? If I can be transparent with you for just a moment, man, when I'm feeling hurt, when I'm feeling offended, when I'm feeling deceived and really let down, how slow I am to run to the Lord and how quickly I am to run to, well, you, you know me, to, to run, just to run. <laughs> Exercise, as good as it is, I, it's, it easily becomes this numbing mechanism, an escape from my pain. I'm prone to, to run to the quick fix of, of entertainment or, or distraction because I feel so low down because of some negative comment someone made about me or to me. I'll throw myself into work and I will just work round the clock hours if I need to in order to disprove the naysayers, even if they're only in my head and to show that I'm really worthy again. Earthly satisfaction, worldly fixes to my problems. How many of you have been wounded by your dad's belittling words, saying that you would never make it in life, and the only remedy that you see is to surround yourself with wealth, a respectable job, a name for yourself that will forever silence the deafening voice of your dad? How many of you have been betrayed by someone that you loved and you felt that the only way to feel love again was to earn the affection of any and everyone around you through your unmatched reputation of sweetness? How many of you were criticized for the way that you parent only to respond to those painful words by determining that you are gonna raise the most well-behaved, successful, educated children on the face of the earth in order to feel validated as a parent? In what ways are you tempted to cope with the pain that's been dealt to you by finding your satisfaction in the things of this world? 
and your reputation, your income, your perfect children, your rank, your position, as if all those things could really heal the wound that you've been dealt. And not only that, there's also a grave warning here. When we run to earthly things for refuge, we become like those who reject the Lord. But you see, David, he sees through all that. He sees the futility and the emptiness of making this world his treasure. This refuge simply won't last and it won't satisfy either. And so he, even in the depth of his pain, he turns away from the world and he boldly proclaims, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. God, you are my reward. When I'm hurting, when I'm offended, when I'm in danger, nothing in this world will do. You are my greatest treasure. Church, when we pursue the Lord in our pain, we're guaranteed to get the Lord. When we pursue a refuge in earthly treasure, all we get is temporary, a temporary mirage that will ultimately disappoint us. So maybe David's words here, as he talks about seeing the Lord's face and being satisfied in his likeness, maybe they sound vaguely familiar to you. And if so, it's because the Apostle Paul, when he was, talking, when he was receiving his revelation of the new heavens and the new earth, he wrote this down. He said, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And when we see God face to face, we're promised that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It says, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Church, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ this morning, there is a sure hope that one day God will bring about full and final healing to the deepest wounds that you've received in his presence. Your worst days on earth will be redeemed. And as difficult as it is to live in a world where we're not always shielded from, from being hurt, from being deceived, slandered, wrongly accused, betrayed, or devalued, we're assured of this, that the sufferings, of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. From Romans 8, there is a healing to come and it will come in the presence of a compassionate and just God. So maybe you think, well, that's great. Someday off in the future, <laughs> but what about now? Do I have to wait till heaven to reap the rewards of, of God's presence? Well, the good news for you is that Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to live in our hearts as a present comfort, one who is near to the brokenhearted, who saves the crushed in spirit, as Psalm says, one whose welcome invitation is to the weary and the heavy laden. You have access now to the Holy Spirit, the comforter who abides in all those who place their trust in Christ. So I just want to plead with you to avail yourself to him as your comforter and not to the things of this world. 
So now, church, I, I, I pray that God's word has, been, has, has brought you great hope and comfort as you, as you reflect on and as you grapple maybe with, with some of the relational pain that you've experienced and how God wants to meet you in that pain as a refuge of love and of justice and of healing presence. But I don't think we can end right there. I want to close by pointing us one step further towards this radical, upside-down kingdom of Jesus. So please listen really, really carefully, okay? In Luke 24, after Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried, and he's been risen from the dead, two of his disciples, they're walking on this road to a small town called Emmaus. And suddenly they're met by the resurrected Jesus without them even knowing that it's him. And this is what Jesus does. It says that he opens up the scriptures and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And just a few verses later, he, he meets his disciples and he clarifies, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophet and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Listen, yes, the Psalms, they were written by men such as David and others born out of real life circumstances and in a specific historic context. But these words are also have a divine authorship. And Jesus himself said that these Psalms point to him. The Psalms are really pointing us to Jesus. In fact, did you know that as a Jew, Jesus would have regularly prayed and sang these songs out of his own mouth. And so with that understanding of the Christ-oriented direction and nature of the Psalms, I want to invite you to listen to this Psalm again, but with new ears. Perhaps these words were a whisper on the lips of our Lord as he neared the cross of Calvary, as he was falsely accused of sin by the religious community, as he was wounded by the hateful mockery, betrayed by his disciples, abused by his captors, torn down by the words of the authorities, disowned by his very friend. Hear these words as coming from the truly innocent one. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From, the presence, from your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the words of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your path. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you and you will answer me, O God, incline your ear to me. Hear my words. And as we move on to verse 10, could you imagine with me the Christ as he's surrounded by his enemies, ready to crucify him? They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He's like a lion, eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. 
But for us living on this side of the cross, we know the rest of the story. We know exactly how Jesus dealt with his enemies. In that moment, when Jesus was face to face with the enemies that were seeking to kill him, he could have called down an army of angels to wipe out his accusers, to rescue him from the cross, and to put an end to his suffering. But instead, he confronted and he subdued his enemies by dying for them. Jesus, the truly innocent one, returned all the evil that was done to him with something so radical and so counterintuitive that the world would never be the same place again. Luke 23 records the story. It says, And when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus confronts his enemies by inviting them out of their rebellion and extending grace and forgiveness, satisfying the demand of justice for evil by absorbing the punishment in himself. And so you may ask, are you telling me that Jesus wants me to forgive those people who have so badly wounded me? What could possibly make me want to do that? I think the Apostle Paul would tenderly respond through the book of Romans, chapter 5, when he speaks of Jesus. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, you and I were counted among Christ's enemies. In our rebellion against God, we rejected him, we mocked him, we pained him. And yet he conquers and subdues our hard hearts by dying for us by forgiving us when we least deserve it. And so perhaps there's hope for us that by the power of his spirit at work inside of us that we can offer the same forgiveness to those who have hurt us the most. And so church, as you, as you face the pain that's been inflicted on you by others, may the refuge of God's love give you boldness to bring your pain to him. And may his love silence the voices of accusation. May the refuge of his justice release you from the need to take revenge into your own hands. May the refuge of his presence bring you healing and bring you comfort in your pain. And finally, may you be melted by the undeserved forgiveness that Christ has extended to you, empowering you to do the same for others.